Reagan Riley glanced out the window of the plane she'd been on for the last five hours, thrilled to finally spot the skyline of Manhattan. It's great to be back, she thought. This is where I belong. For a lot of reasons, not the least of which was her new beau, the head of the major case squad in New York City, one Jack Riley, who, thank God, was no relation. A private investigator in Los Angeles, 31-year-old Reagan was planning to attend the crime convention that her mother, mystery writer Nora Reagan Riley, had organized with a handful of her fellow authors. Reagan's father, Luke, the owner of three funeral homes in New Jersey, would be there too. It was at Christmas time when her father had been kidnapped that Reagan had met Jack Riley. They'd been involved in a coast-to-coast -coast romance for three months. At the baggage claim, Reagan was inordinately pleased that for once her suitcases were among the first to be spit down the chute. There was only one person on the taxi line. This is all so easy today, Reagan thought. Too easy. Something's got to go wrong. But even though it was after five o'clock on a Thursday, her cab made great time getting into the city. She'd be joining her parents at the convention's opening cocktail party and then for dinner. Jack had an award ceremony he had to attend out on Long Island, but she'd see him tomorrow. Life was a regular bowl of cherries. At her parents' apartment, Reagan felt the familiar sense of comfort that she always experienced when she walked through the door. She quickly showered, changed into a black dress, the nighttime uniform in the city, and hurried out. The cocktail party was still in full swing. Nora spotted Reagan the minute she arrived, her maternal instinct on its usual red alert. Reagan, you're here, Nora said happily as she hurried over to greet her only child. Several hours later, Reagan, Nora, and Luke were finishing a festive dinner at the Gramercy Tavern. That was delicious, Reagan said as she looked around the busy restaurant. This is the perfect place to kick off the weekend. I don't get down to this neighborhood enough. Little did she know that less than two blocks away, a crime was taking place, a crime that would bring her back to Gramercy Park much sooner than she expected. Nat Pemrod sat at the antique desk in the living room of his splendid penthouse apartment and sighed happily. A few feet away, the door to his safe was open, and all its contents were spread out lovingly in front of him. With a hint of mist in his eyes, he gazed down at his deceased wife Wendy's engagement and wedding rings, the pearls he had given her on their first anniversary, the silly little ring they'd gotten out of a crackerjack box that Wendy had always treasured even more than her real jewelry, all the bracelets and earrings and necklaces and pins he had bought her over the years were here. Each and every bauble and trinket, cheap or expensive, held a special memory. Nat had been a jeweler for 50 years. A few days ago, he and his buddy and fellow jeweler, Ben, had decided to donate the proceeds from the sale of four precious diamonds they'd owned secretly for almost half a century to their ailing settlers club in honor of its 100th anniversary. They'd both been settlers since their early 30s, and Nat had been in residence at the club for most of his life. The club, founded by an eccentric, 
for pioneering people with spirit and located on beautiful Gramercy Park, had in its heyday been a favored gathering place for social, political, and artistic leaders, a mecca for cultural events. But now the club was suffering the fate of many similar clubs and was in danger of closing. Membership was down, the place was in disrepair, and funds were low. With the anniversary party coming up, Nat and Ben had decided they should put their money where their hearts were, so to speak, sell the diamonds, and fork over what would amount to four million dollars to the club. Nat conducted his private, loving inventory, and was about to put the jewelry back in the safe when once again his eyes fell on the special red velvet jewelry case. His hands trembled slightly as he reached for it. Cradling the case in his outstretched palms, he opened it carefully and stared at the four large and brilliant diamonds that, in a matter of days, would be turned into cold, hard cash. A surge of excitement coursed through his veins, and he clapped his hands. This is going to be fun, he thought. Helping this club fix itself up, Ben and I will be at the helm of it all. It sure brightens up a dreary march. The raw wind outside suddenly seemed to penetrate the apartment. Nat pulled his bathrobe closer and looked around at his living room appreciatively. The glorious wood paneling, the antique furniture, the wrought iron staircase that led up to a balcony with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, the tops of which overlooked the couch, the fireplace, and the pair of life-size sheep that were perched in front of the window. Nat and Wendy had bought them early in their marriage because they reminded Wendy of her childhood days on a sheep farm in England. Over the years, Nat had surprised her with any sheep knickknacks he could get his hands on, but the two stuffed sheep were her favorites. She loved them so much that when she made a generous donation to the Settlers Club right before she died three years ago, it was with the understanding that when she and Nat were both dead, the club would take those sheep and put them in a place of honor in the front parlor. Nat grabbed the red box and walked over to the sheep, whom he and Wendy had named Dolly and Baba. He pulled the two glass stones out of Dolly's eye sockets and replaced them with two of the diamonds. He then repeated the procedure on Baba, stood back, and smiled. The eyes have it. Carefully, Nat pulled the strands of wool that were their bangs over their valuable eyes and patted them both. He dropped the glass stones into the red box and replaced it on the desk. I'll take my shower and then close up shop here, he thought with a smile. He shuffled down the long hallway and through his bedroom. In the opulent marble master bathroom, Nat turned on the jets in the shower full force. He walked back into his bedroom, closing the bathroom door behind him. Warm it up a little in there first. The ten o'clock news would just be starting. He lay down on his bed, grabbed the remote control, and flicked on the television. Nat closed his eyes for what he thought would be a moment, but quickly dozed off. When he awoke with a start, the clock on the bedside table read 10.38. Nat pulled his 83-year-old body up 
and slid down off the old-fashioned four-poster bed that his dear wife had purchased three decades ago at a most serendipitous garage sale. As he pushed open the bathroom door, a wall of steam enveloped him. Ah, he grunted as he took off his bathrobe and hung it on a hook. But something was wrong. He peered through the steam and stepped toward the oversized jacuzzi. It was filled with water. What? I didn't turn this on, did I? No, you didn't. Startled, Nat spun around. He started to speak, but before the words came out, an intruder emerged from the steam and gave Nat a forceful shove that sent him hurtling backward into the jacuzzi. Nat's head banged against the side of the tub before it slid below the surface of the water. The intruder watched as Nat's body settled into a nearly motionless state, swaying ever so gently with the movement of the slowly calming water. It's a shame how many people lose their lives when they slip in the tub. A crying shame. A moment later, the shower jets were turned off and the inside of the stall